That is one thing that you cannot get from staying home and listening to a podcast on Sunday morning, which is the church gathered with one collective voice to sing of the glories of Christ. That was pretty amazing. Um, My name's Jamie. Glad to have you guys here. Thanks for bringing the church into this building this morning. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, If you're new, glad to have you. If you're uh, old and seasoned around these parts, glad to have you as well and everyone in between. Uh, We, for the last few weeks, have uh, jumped into a new series entitled The Story the purpose of which is to uh, take a look at the major chapters of redemptive history. Uh, and so when we talk about uh, the creation of the world, we see that as, as an act, uh, as one act in a number of acts that make up uh, redemptive history, God's divine drama. Um, we, we see the fall of man as one of those acts as well. We see the redemption that comes in Christ as one of those acts. And then finally, the restoration of all things in the end when Jesus returns to make everything sad untrue. Um, There's much more that the Bible has to say than what we're going to say in this particular series, so to speak. But hopefully this at least establishes some handles uh, for us in in this place to come in week in and week out and to establish where we are in this story um, at any given time. This series is an emphatic response to the cultural belief that the Bible is just a bunch of haphazard, piecemealed stories just brought together uh, without any purpose in mind uh, in terms of how they're, they're weaved together with any sort of uh, literary artistry. Rather, we believe that the Bible is one glorious, overarching, redemptive historical drama with the artistic, creative God of the universe as its author, weaving it together into a masterpiece. And I think you'll even see uh, some of that this morning as we look at some of the things that so, are so easily passed over as we read um, certain parts of the Bible like Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. We go, yeah, the creation and the fall, I got that. Um, but we, we skim over so quickly and we miss some of the, the literary brilliance that God brings to bear in particular passages like the one that we're going to read this morning. This series is an emphatic response to the cultural belief that the Bible is nothing more than a rule book telling you what you should and shouldn't do. Um, Does the Bible have some rules in it? Yes and amen to that it does. But the Bible is not ultimately about you and what you do or don't do, but rather it's about God and what he has done. The series is an emphatic response to the cultural belief that the Bible is nothing more than a, a bunch of heroes, a book of heroes meant to emulate, meant to model your life after. Are there men and women in the scriptures that act heroic at times that we can look at and imitate as they imitate uh, the one who made them and who uh, is in the work of redeeming them? Yes and amen to that, but the Bible is not ultimately a book of multiple heroes to be emulated. In fact, most of the characters fall on their faces at some point along the way. Rather, the Bible is a redemptive story meant to point us to one true hero who binds the entire thing together, and his name is Jesus. And so my hope is that as we work our way through this series, that you'll find your place in this unfolding drama that God is authoring and has actually even entered into as a character, as we'll get to a couple weeks from now. In terms of a recap, we began this series um, as the reader of any good story should, looking at the about the author snippet on the back dust cover of the book, so to speak. Um, any book that you read, uh, you should know that the author's experiences are shaping that very story, uh, that the author's worldview is shaping the very story that you're reading, and it's no different with the Bible. It just so happens that the author of this particular story happens to be the God of the universe. 
And so we discussed a few weeks ago some critical aspects of God's character that are important to know as we dive into this story. And I'm not going to go back over those this morning, but I would encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast from week one of this series. And in fact, I would, I would say that would be a good thing to make a practice of um, if you're going to run with us uh, for any extended amount of time because uh, we believe that the Bible um, is written in context historically, literarily. Um, we, we don't believe that the Bible uh, is just made up of a bunch of haphazard verses that we can stick on bumper stickers and coffee cups that have no explanation as to uh, where those verses come from, what preceded them, what, uh, what followed suit after those particular verses. And so on week one of any given series, I'm going to do my best to try to unpack where, where we are in the scriptures. If we go through the book of Ephesians, what got us there? When we work our way through creation and the fall in the Old Testament, what's the story of God's people that lead up to the coming of Christ and then in the wake of Christ's coming, the, the beginnings of the church and what's going on in Ephesus that leads Paul to write this particular letter? That's what we're after at the beginning of any particular series or book of the Bible that we work our way through. So um, if you happen to miss week one, it's the worst week you could possibly ever miss with this church. So go back, listen, if you missed it with this particular series, um, uh, there's grace for that, but um, go back and, and catch yourself up to speed. For the past two weeks, we spent time in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 looking at the creation story. And so in Genesis 1, we got a panoramic view of God setting the stage for uh, this redemptive historical drama that he's authoring and, and is the main character of with stage lights hanging from outer space in the form of sun and moon and stars uh, God creating and shaping the domains of water, earth, and sky, and creating a supporting cast of creatures to inhabit those various domains. That's the panoramic view. Last week, we looked at uh, the, the zoomed-in view. The camera zooms in on man in, in the utopian, perfect garden sanctuary of Eden uh, under the, the reign of their covenant creator. So you have God's people in God's place under God's rule. A garden filled with a thousand tokens of God's love and provision for them. And then there's that one tree that God said not to eat of. If we're reading this story for the first time, we'd be on the edge of our seats. What, 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 what's what's going to happen next? I don't like that tree. Why is that there? Why, why are all the trees not good? Why are my eyes fixed on that one tree rather than the thousand other ones? What's going to unfold? Well, I'm glad you asked. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. We'll see what happens next. Most of us probably already know, but I think you're going to see some things that uh, maybe haven't been unearthed before, and I say that because that was my experience in preparing this sermon this week. Um, God opened my eyes to a couple of things that were really quite amazing that I had not seen in the previous times that I had read this particular famous chapter of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to Genesis chapter 3. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible is yours. Let me pray for us. We'll get to work. God, thank you so much for the scriptures. Without divine revelation, we would be left with nothing more than human speculation in terms of trying to figure out why we're here, what this thing is all about, what, uh, whether or not there is a creator, whether or not we could know that creator. So thank you for giving us your divine revelation uh, in the form of the scriptures so that we could know this very story that we're a part of and ultimately could know the author and redeemer of it. God, I pray that you would work in our hearts, 
that we would see Christ as that much more glorious as a result of our time in Genesis chapter 3 this morning. Would you do that by the power of the Spirit? And we lift these things up in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. If you remember, we talked about this a couple times, but this particular book of the Bible, uh, in terms of context, was written by Moses in the wake of the Israelite exodus from Egypt. The Israelites had been enslaved for hundreds of years. God brought them out. They had been immersed in ancient Near Eastern religion, which saw serpents as symbolic of a number of things. So serpents were uh, seen as a symbol of protection, strangely enough, a symbol of healing, a symbol of fertility, a symbol of wisdom, and even a symbol of magic. Um, And then on the the other hand, they were also seen as a symbol of evil and death. So serpents were a mixed bag, you could say. Um, Hard for me to reconcile in my logical brain, but that's how people in the ancient Near East saw it. Here in Genesis 3, the serpent is seen only as a symbol of evil and death. So the question begs to be answered, who is this serpent and where did the serpent come from? If you're going to spend any time discussing the author, God himself, and human beings as a part of the story, it would be helpful to take a look at the arch nemesis who exists to this day. The serpent is still on the scene. Our our enemy is still on the scene, and it would be helpful to know who he is. Revelation 12.9 answers that question. If you fast forward to the last book of the Bible, we're told this. That the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So the, the serpent in Genesis 3 is the devil himself, the ancient serpent, Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, the slanderer, the accuser. Um, those are uh, what his uh, various names mean the ruler of this world. He's a deceiver from the moment he comes on the scene in Genesis chapter three, as we'll see momentarily. And so where did he come from? What's his history? The book of Genesis does not answer that particular question. According to the book of Genesis, God created the world as perfect and good, right? We've read chapters one and two. Your ears should perk a little bit and go, whoa, where where did that guy come from? He just kind of came out of nowhere. The serpent just appears. Something happened between the first two chapters of the book of Genesis and chapter 3, verse 1, where we are right now. This is one of those times where it's helpful to look elsewhere in Scripture to to fill in the missing pieces. Uh, Jude, there's only one chapter in Jude. So Jude, chapter 1, verse 6, says this. And the angels who did not stay with their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the Judgment of the great day. Okay, so, so they're a grouping of angels who did not stay within their position of authority in submission to God as their creator and king. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says it this way. God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So it appears that there was um, originally a host of angelic beings in God's presence, and some of those angelic beings, including Satan, sinned against God. They had their own game of would you rather, similar to what we're going to see with Adam and Eve in just a moment. Would you rather bask in the presence of God Almighty in submission to his lordship, or would you rather choose your own glory and power 
and lose paradise forever. Satan, along with a band of angelic followers, chooses glory thieving. They reject God and rebel against him, and they lose, as does anyone who chooses self-glory over the glorification of God. They were expelled from heaven forever. And according to the book of Genesis, we don't get much more backstory than that. Um, there are other passages in the Old Testament that allude to uh, quite possibly Satan's personal story of being a part of that fallen host of angelic beings. Uh, but according to the book of Genesis, God doesn't give us much more than that. There's an entire branch of study devoted to dealing with all the questions left unanswered regarding evil and its origin. Um, it's what theologians refer to as theodicy, the problem of evil. How is it that if God was in the beginning and nothing else, that evil now exists? Did God create it? Can God create evil? Um, does he just ordain it? Do we define evil as simply the absence of good, a privation of being, as Augustine uh, declared it to be? Um, how do you explain, explain evil in the world if God is good? Doesn't that bring his goodness into question? Um, is he not willing to do something about it? Or maybe he's not omnipotent, all-powerful. Maybe he can't do something about it. Does the presence of evil uh, make the case for the fact that there is no all-good, all-powerful God? And I would encourage you to study those things for yourself. Um, maybe at some point down the road, we'll have an apologetics class where we talk about all of those questions. And I think you've got to come at it with a sense of mystery because there comes a point where we just don't know any more answers than what the scriptures give us. And we have to trust in God and his character. But for the sake of unpacking what isn't left to speculation in Genesis chapter 3, um, I, I guess one way you could say it is the devil came down to Eden. He was looking for a soul to steal. That's the summary <laughs> That's the summary of what's going on in Genesis chapter 3, okay? So pick up the story, the back half of, of verse 2. He said to the woman, here we go, here's the encounter. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of, the tree, of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say? Okay, so we're talking about the trustworthiness of God's word here. It's what it all boils down to. The serpent brings into question the trustworthiness of God's very word. It's the same thing he does with Jesus in Matthew chapter four um, in the wilderness, right before Jesus is uh, led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. We have the scene of Jesus's baptism just prior to that temptation. What does God the Father declare as Jesus comes up from the baptismal waters? We talk about this all the time around here. He says, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. God the Father declares in that moment that Jesus is the Son of God, unquestionably. Fast forward to the very next scene in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter four. Jesus is in the wilderness, Satan approaches, and the first words out of Satan's mouth are this. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. God the Father says, you are my beloved Son, Satan the deceiver says, if you are the son of God. He's calling into question the trustworthiness of God's word in the moment of Jesus' baptism. It's what he's in the business of doing even today. He'd love nothing more than for you to question whether God knows what he's doing, whether God knows what he's talking about, whether what God has declared about you in Christ, all those promises are true or not. He'd love nothing more than that. He'd love nothing more than for you to elevate your experiences and your subjective feelings above the authority of Scripture, his very word. If the enemy can get you to question the trustworthiness of God's word, he can take you out. Tale as old as time. 
I've been watching a lot of Beauty and the Beast lately, lately with, with my two daughters. He's been at it from the very beginning. Did God actually say? What we'll find out soon enough is that our unbelief or belief doesn't enhance or diminish the, the validity of God's word whatsoever. It doesn't matter what you and I believe. If God says it, it's settled. Notice the subtlety of the enemy's attack. Man, he is crafty. The Bible tells us that. Notice the name that he uses in referring to God here in verse 1. If you go back to last week, we talked about the fact that in Genesis chapter 1, um, God is referred to as Elohim, which is a, a general name for God as creator. And then you get to Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 as the camera zooms in on God's people in God's garden sanctuary. And according to Genesis 2 verse 4, we get the first moment where God is referred to as something other than Elohim, other than creator God. In that verse, he's referred to as Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh is God's name in relation to his covenant people. Here in Genesis 3, the serpent leaves out the covenant element of God's name altogether. In other words, he's saying, did the creator actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Do you see how that's vastly different than, did your covenant Lord actually say? He deliberately sweeps God's covenant relationship with Eve under the rug generalizes God to creator alone. He's crafty. He's deceptive. He, he's not like the devil of cartoons. He doesn't oftentimes show up on our shoulder with a pitchfork and horns. His tactics are very subtle. He captures Eve's attention. Um, there's a, a, an artist around the time of the Protestant Reformation named Albrecht Dürer who created... Uh, a work of art entitled Night, Death, and the Devil. Night spelled K-N-I-G-H-T, like a knight in shining armor. And, and you see this picture, I'm um, not sure if the screen does it justice or not, but uh, of a knight riding on his horse, and there's a castle off in the distance at the, the top center of the, the particular piece. And off to the side of the path are these evil creatures that you see kind of in the background, and, and you're meant to feel... Uh, what we should be feeling in Genesis 3, this question of what's going to happen? I don't, I don't like that those evil creatures are on the side of the path. Are they going to deter him from getting to the destination? How is this going to play out? But the, the hope of the artist is that you would find comfort in looking at the face of the knight who's not looking down off the sides of the path at the evil creatures at all, but rather uh, has his sights set on the destination and the path that will, that will take him there. Satan knows if he can get our attention, if he can take our eyes off the prize, namely God himself, he can cause us to doubt God's goodness, his character, his promises. It's not that we ignore him as if he's not there, but rather that we continue to fix our eyes upon Christ as we wage this, this battle in the spiritual realm. Verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, so here's the response, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Okay, so Adam was given the, the responsibility of morally leading his family if you go uh, back to Genesis chapter 2. But here we see Eve act as the first defender of the garden. She declares that which God actually said in Genesis chapter 2. Whereas Satan only addressed the, the thou shalt not uh, of God's original command. 
Eve brings into the conversation the joy of God's declaration. Hey, you can eat of a thousand trees, which are tokens of my love and provision for you. In one sense, she defends God's word. But in another sense, we also see Eve's vision get get blurred in the moment. This is a very subtle detail. But if you go back to Genesis chapter 2, it was the tree of life that was declared to be in the midst of the garden. You look back at chapter 2 as God is, is planting all these trees in uh, his perfect utopian garden sanctuary. It's the tree of life that's declared to be in the midst, which is a Hebrew word for middle or center. I think oftentimes we get in our minds, man, why did God put that one tree right in the middle you know, to completely wreck us? Because how can you take your, your sights uh, away from the center of everything he's made? But that's not how God designed it. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not at the center of his perfect utopian garden sanctuary in Genesis chapter 2. It's in Genesis chapter 3 that that a shift happens in Eve's heart and mind and the lens through which she now sees the garden. She now views the forbidden tree as the one in the midst of the garden according to verses 2 and 3. The tree of life has been replaced with the tree of death as the center of her focus. Articulate enough theologically to defend God's trustworthy word, yet yet a heart that begins to veer toward the forbidden. Maybe that's some of our stories in this very room this morning. Theologically astute, and yet with a heart that's far from God. Theology is always meant to lead to doxology, the praise of our creator and redeemer. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here Satan goes from subtlety to outright opposition in God's word. God said in Genesis 2, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Satan says here, you will not surely die. He's saying you can commit cosmic treason against God and get away with it. Whatever he declares doesn't really have the authority that you think it has. You see the irony of these verses, verses 4 and 5? The enemy says you will be like God. Adam and Eve are already like God. They bear his image. Part of what it means to be like God as his image bearer is to exercise dominion, Genesis 1.26, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Hello? In this moment, we should see Eve exercising dominion over this crafty beast by declaring, what do you mean be like God? I'm already like God. I'm his image bearer. You don't have the authority to rule over me. I've been given the authority by God to rule over you. But the tables are turned. What the serpent is really offering is, is judicial autonomy. Eve, you can determine truth for yourself. That's how you can be like God. You can live a life of self-determination, eliminating the distinction between creator and created. Instead of God's world and God's word, it can be your world and your word. Do you see how silly it is to wave our fists in the face of our first parents and go, how could you blow it? Like, seriously, a couple of boneheads. Like, I would have never done that. Yeah, right. It can be your world and your word. The fickle human heart desires judicial autonomy. 
self-determination, to be a part of a story in which we get to be the main character. It's why we bristle when we hear this idea that God is at the center, and he should be because he's God. Instead of God's world and God's word, it can be your world. It can be your word, Eve. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Again, we're meant to to see uh, this literary repetition of language happening. If you go back to Genesis 2, verse 9, we're told, out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree, and listen to how these trees are described, the good ones, every tree that is pleasant to the sight, there's the aesthetic piece, and good for food, there's the practical piece. It's a description of all the trees that, were, uh, that Adam and Eve were free to eat of in the garden. God's gifts to them. Here in Genesis 3, we see the same language attached to the forbidden tree. She saw that the tree was good for food, there's the practical, and that it was a delight to the eyes. There's the aesthetic piece. That in the moment, the forbidden all of a sudden becomes a delight to the eyes. Sound familiar? It's it's that language we talked about in the Proverbs series. All of a sudden, the land of, of the dead looks like the land of the living. We get confused. Our hearts are fickle. Um, they're drawn in ways uh, that are oppositional to, to God's uh, good gifts and commands. He offers eternal pleasure, infinite joy in his presence. And I, I don't know about you, but I can absolutely relate to Eve here. I grieve this moment in the garden because I've had plenty of them on my own. More than I can count. Eve eats of the forbidden fruit, as does her husband. So you have an act of active rebellion against God. But, but notice, it's not just the sins that are committed. It's what's omitted. The sins of omission. What's Adam doing in this moment? Answer, falling asleep on the job. Failing to protect both the garden and his wife, his bride. Adam's been given the primary responsibility of morally leading his family. And rather than man up and take responsibility, he allows a scumbag to take the dance floor with his girl while he's sitting in the bleachers. And men have been doing it ever since. In the wake of Eve's act of rebellion, we see Adam follow suit, actively rebelling against God. And we're told, according to verse 7, that the eyes of both were then opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Imagine, and if you could just go back as if you'd never read this story before, imagine the devastation in that moment, realizing that you don't feel like a god at all. Rather, you just feel dirty. They see their own sin. They see their own spiritual bankruptcy in that moment. They feel the guilt and the shame. And they do what most human beings do when they see their sin for what it is. They attempt to cover it up. We've been doing it ever since. Hiding behind anything and everything. Afraid that we might actually be exposed. And that that's a bad thing. What does that look like for you? What what do you hide behind? I've said this before. I'll say it again. The Bible Belt is the land of the multi-layered onion. We all have like 17 layers that you got to peel back to finally get to the real person underneath. What do you hide behind? What is it that keeps you from being truly known by others? What is it that keeps you from taking that next step of transparency, that next step of vulnerability? 
What are your fig leaves? Those things that you trust in for your identity other than Jesus. We, we all have our counterfeit forms of righteousness when we're not trusting in the righteousness of Christ. I'm good at my job. My kids turned out successful in life. I'm well-read and theologically astute. Have you seen my library? I make and manage my money really well. I have a strong sense of self-discipline. I give a lot to good causes and so forth and so on. Are those things bad? No, but if you're trusting in those things to establish your identity, then those things are fig leaves. Nothing more. They cannot cover your sin and your shame. Only Jesus can do that. Verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So sin doesn't just create barriers between human beings. It creates barriers between man and God. The very joy that Adam and Eve were created for, to bask in the presence of God. It's the very thing they run from, like a couple of fugitives. What once was an open, honest relationship with God becomes a game of hide-and-go-seek in the garden. Which, by the way, I've said this one before, too. You can't win that game. It's an exercise in futility. God knows your hiding spot before he ever closes his eyes, so to speak, and counts to ten. Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Going back to last week, though Eve eats the forbidden fruit first, God comes to Adam first. Adam's been given the primary responsibility of morally leading his family. He fails to do so, and so God seeks him out. It's not not like God doesn't know where Adam is. He's, He's not on the search. He doesn't have a big spotlight in a helicopter up above the garden trees trying to figure out where the fugitives have run off to in this moment. He's the God who created everything. He's omniscient. He's all knowing. I think he asked this question in this moment, where are you? So that Adam might feel the weight of separation in that moment between he and God. Where are you? That implies a barrier between man and God for the first time. In verse 10, Adam responds. Pretty gutsy response, I think. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, God, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. What was once an open, honest relationship between man and woman becomes a game of blame shifting. Adam says, it's the woman's fault. She gave me the forbidden fruit. And it was kind of your fault too, God, because you gave me the woman in the first place. And of course, Eve does the same thing. It was the serpent's fault. It was ultimately him. He deceived me. He's crafty. He's subtle. He took my eyes off the the tree of life and and, and he, he tricked me. Whatever it takes to direct the focus elsewhere, right? We do the same thing again. Blame shifting and hiding, both of which we find in Genesis 3, are just a couple of forms uh, of things that that we bring to bear that downplay the depths of our sin and brokenness. We're so terrified of having an Isaiah 6 moment. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I, I live amongst a people of unclean lips. 
The problem is on the other side of that declaration is hope that comes in God entering in and making atonement for our sins. We blame shift. We hide like our first parents in the garden. We, we defend or legitimize. We come up with reasons why we're the exception to the rule. Oh, that, that doesn't apply to me because, and we can list it out in bullet point fashion really well. We minimize Uh, We do so by comparing our sin to the sins of others who have committed uh, greater and more heinous sins rather than comparing ourselves to God and his sinless perfection. Right? Well, I'm not Hitler. I'm not Stalin. I'm not a radical jihadist. Like, you know, the list goes on. Like, we, we compare ourselves in those ways to say, so I must be a good person by comparison. We pretend We pretend by working hard to uh, maintain a respectable image, to keep up appearances, which is different than hiding. Hiding is more about shame. Pretending is more about impressing. It's it's an attempt to um, take people's eyes off of your sin by saying, look at all the ways I'm so great. And then there's escaping, where we run to the next movie, the next gadget, the next project in order to escape the reality of our sin. We're, we're afraid that if we slow down just long enough that our sin might ring loudly through the silence. And so we just keep going and going and going, never to stop. The gospel, here's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel allows you to stop running to slow down and marvel at the cross of Jesus Christ. The gospel allows you to stop pretending, to stop trying to impress others and rather to point them to an impressive Savior. The gospel allows you to stop minimizing, to stop comparing, to declare that we're all sinners in need of a Savior. The gospel allows you to stop defending to stop legitimizing, to stop looking for loopholes all the time, to own the fact that you're imperfect once in a while, but you serve a perfect Savior. The gospel allows you to stop blame shifting like our first parents in the garden, to own your sin so that you can confess it and experience healing. And finally, the gospel allows you to stop hiding, to lay down your arms, Put down the fig leaves, the counterfeit forms of righteousness, the people and things you hide behind in order to avoid being truly known. I mean, God offers us something so much better than fig leaves. And we'll get there even next week as we see um, the beginnings of, of God's hope of redemption. He offers to clothe us ultimately in the righteousness of his son. That Jesus lived the perfect life that we, along with our first parents in the garden, could never live We'll get there uh, next week in all of its fullness, but Jesus died the death that we deserve to die in our place, taking the penalty for our sin upon himself. Again, it's, it's Luther's great exchange. Jesus takes my sin and he gives me his righteousness, his perfect righteousness, so that when God looks at us, if you're in Christ, he declares you righteous, not because you are, but because Jesus is for you. That's so much better than fig leaves. Right? We see that in the parable of the prodigal son. We get a glimpse of the gospel as he comes home to his father. And his father declares, my son who was once lost has been found. And he throws a great feast and he robes him in the, in the best of his robes. That's what God does in redeeming us. He takes our sin upon himself and he robes us in the finest of robes. Namely the righteousness of Christ. Fig leaves in comparison 
those things we cover ourselves up with in order to feel better about ourselves are really like monopoly money. They're counterfeit. In the presence of a holy God, they blow away in an instant. The righteousness of Christ will never blow away in the presence of God. You'll be robed in the righteousness of Christ for eternity. In a moment, we're going to take communion. Story's not over yet. Part two next week, we take a look at how God responds to sin. We get a better idea of why um, the world is not as it should be what the effects of this moment in the garden um, have played out to be in terms of the implications for, um, for us, for the story at large. And so I invite you to come back next week to explore part two of this particular act of this divine, redemptive, historical drama. But for now, as we prepare to take communion, which we do here by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing the shed blood of Jesus, If you're a Christian, this meal is for you. As you come, uh, as you prepare to come, I would would invite you to just spend some time in your seat prior to um, sitting with the question, what are the proverbial fig leaves in my life right now? What what are the things that I'm looking to to create a a righteousness that only Christ can offer me? Um, what, What have I forgotten as it pertains to the gospel that I need to be reminded of this morning and where do I need to lay down those counterfeit forms of righteousness, those things that I, I, I buy into the lie, uh, it can actually cover me in those moments. And then come to the table and take of the bread and dip it in the cup, uh, celebrating the fact that you're robed in the righteousness of Christ, that just like Jesus at his baptism, when it was declared of him, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, the same is declared of you right now if you are in Christ. You are his beloved child with whom he is well pleased. When he looks at you, not because you are righteous, but because Christ is for you, you are declared righteous. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.